The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe. I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, guys, before we jump into it, we just want to say please give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you like to go on social media, and please give us a like or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you prefer getting your podcast. So many things to discuss today. We have the West Virginia basketball team, the transfer portal, our interview with Stedman Bailey, but let's start with the guaranteed rate bowl. The West Virginia Mountaineers are defeated by the Minnesota Golden Gophers by the score of 18 to six. This game was embarrassing because the score doesn't fully represent how one-sided this game really was. The Mountaineer offense went three and out, officially five out of 11 possessions. And honestly, the final possession was a run play to let the last four seconds run off. So in reality, West Virginia went three and out on 50% of their possessions. Not a winning recipe. The Mountaineer defense had an average day. They only allowed 18 points and 109 passing yards, but they were gashed for 249 rushing yards. Minnesota missed an easy field goal on their first drive, and they also had a turnover in the red zone. Credit to the Mountaineer D and Charles Woods for forcing two turnovers, but this game could have been a lot worse. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just watching the game, it seemed like the offense was lifeless. Um, You know, a lot of head-scratching play-calling decisions, a lot of spotty play in defense. I mean, you can kind of see where you're hurting for bodies there. I mean, we did bring some guys back, like Lance Dixon, who had a great game, but, you know, all that injuries and turnovers really kind of wore us thin, and you know, playing 13 games, it's really hard to be healthy that late into the season. And then you're going against a team who wants to play physical and pound the ball. Um, It's just not a good recipe. And, you know, that's not an excuse for us playing the way we did. I I still think the defense played, you know, well enough, but, um, you know, everyone's banged up at this time of year. And, you know, I think everyone as West Virginia fans should probably have expected something a little bit more appeasing, appealing to watch anyways. Yeah, 100%. It was it was a hard watch. One of the toughest games, honestly, all year to watch as a Mountaineer fan. And, uh, I mean, Minnesota, they just dominated time of possession, having the ball nearly 17 more minutes than the Mountaineers. And the big head scratcher to me was, why did West Virginia try to throw the ball 36 times compared to running it 22 times? I know Daigie only had 31 attempts, but he was sacked five times as well. WVU didn't even have a rushing attempt until their third drive and back-to-back runs earned a first down on that drive. And then they went right back to it. They threw the ball three straight times and had to punt to end that third drive. So, I mean, we all know Daggy doesn't have the offensive line or the skill set to throw that many times and have positive results. So I'm sorry, but I put this disaster of a game on our game planning and the coaching staff. What are your thoughts? Oh, yeah. I mean, 100%. And, you know, I did some digging because I thought it was really interesting about, you know, not only the sacks, but kind of the plays that were designed. Um, so looking back at the sacks, there were five of them. You know, I only really put two of them on the offensive line. Um, there was one where Gemitter got absolutely undressed by a linebacker. 
and another play where uh, Brandon Yates just kind of fell over. And uh, I think that was right near the goal line. Um, wasn't a very good effort there. But the other two of the other sacks were kind of on Deggy holding the ball a little bit too much, uh, too long, I should say, and not processing fast enough. And then the fifth was just a really wicked blitz by uh, Minnesota's defensive coordinator call. He sent four guys straight up the middle, and there's nothing you could do about that. It was just a great call at the right time. I think on that play, it was actually um, designed to be a deep pass by WVU, and you're sending four guys right up the gut. You, you're not going to have any time to get that pass off. So great timing, great play call there. Um, but, you know, looking a little bit deeper into it, I went through and rewatched every single one of Jarrett Deggie's passing attempts. Um, and I didn't use a stopwatch. I used the game clock to, to figure out how long he was holding the ball. Um, so really interesting t- statistics here. On passes, uh, uh, whenever Jared Deggie throws the ball in two seconds or less after he receives the snap, he is he was 13 for 16 for 105 yards. He did have one, one pick, and he was sacked three times. Whenever he held the ball for three seconds or more, only three seconds, that's fairly standard, he was five for 12 for 35 yards and another two sacks. So some of that is on Jared Deggie's you know, lack of mobility, but some of it too is the play calling. You know, you, you know what type of quarterback you have, you know what type of offensive line you have, you know, you know what the defense is throwing at you. And just like that, you know, blitz that I talked about from Minnesota, I think it was a, a, a second or third down and reasonable distance. And we're trying to go 20 or 30 yards downfield when you know your offensive line can't hold up and Deggie isn't a mobile guy, can't buy extra time. So, you know, why are we running those plays? I mean, you know, the RPOs were, were successful that game. We were, I think we hit almost every single pass when we were running RPOs, the quick passes were there. <laughs> and that's, I'm not saying we shouldn't run the ball more. We should have, but you know, just the timeliness of some of those calls really killed some of the drives. I mean, I like going downfield, but it's really hard to do that against a team like Minnesota who you're not going to beat deep. They, they play very conservative in the back end, and, you know, they want to beat you man on man and, uh, up in the box. Yeah, 100%. And those are good stats. I didn't know that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, and that's just kind of the nature of football nowadays is you've got to get that ball out of the hands quickly. And especially if you are going to abandon the run, I mean, why aren't you trying to at least have a passing game that does almost make up for a run game with quick hitters and manageable third downs? Because it seemed like the reason we were going three and out so many times was because it was always third and long. I mean, we rarely had a third and manageable to convert. Um, but yeah, you mentioned Daggy stats. Let's really get into it. Jared Daggy had 140 yards, a rushing touchdown, and an interception for his last appearance as a Mountaineer. And I really wanted Daggy to have a successful career here at West Virginia. I've made a lot of excuses for him, but overall, there's just no way you can call his time here a success. He had a 14 and 12 record, and although he's fifth in all-time passing yards and 10th in touchdowns at WVU, it never translated to a lot of wins. So, I mean, it's good to have your name up there with some of the greats, but if, if you're not turning that into wins then, you know, it doesn't really mean a whole lot. And some of those failures can definitely be put on his coaching staff. Like we were just saying, as we discussed earlier, he's not the type of quarterback who can consistently throw the ball 
30 to 40 times a game. You you have to run the ball and take some pressure off of him if you want him to be successful. And as a head coach, you have to know what your players are capable of and put them in the best position to succeed. And at certain times this year, West Virginia just seemed to want Jared Dagey to do all of the heavy lifting, and he's just not that type of quarterback. So what's your opinion on Dagey's career here? Yeah, I, th- I think you know what you said is 100% accurate. I think what Jarrett Deggie is meant to be is a game manager. And then I know those are hard to find in college football nowadays, since it's all built around the quarterback and him being the guy. Um, but, you know, you can, especially when we've had good defenses, like we did this year, and especially like we did last year, you can build win, winning football programs around a running game with a game manager. Um, I, I don't understand why, you know, that the emphasis at times has been so heavy on, on Deggy and passing the ball so much. And I understand, you know, that's just the name of the game. You have to pass the ball some, but kind of the, the plays that they're calling for him. Like we don't run a ton of wide receiver screens. We run maybe two or three a game, but there are teams who run it 15, 20 times a game. And it works because it complements the other things that they're doing. And it seems like we're trying to kind of mash mesh together two or three different styles of play, the RPO, mixed with some wide receiver screens, mixed with an air raid concept. And it just doesn't gel because the idea behind play calling and coaching is that you're supposed to call things in a sequence that gets the defense off balance. And then the next play that you call is supposed to build off of that so that, you know, you hit, you create an opening. Um, And it just kind of doesn't seem like the coaching staff currently gets that, or they probably, they should if they don't, but um, the play calling doesn't really show it. It seems like, you know, there's two or three different people calling plays, which I don't think is the case, but it definitely doesn't seem like there's any consistency or really any way that the play calling and scheming is really, really well thought out past the first couple series, which even the first couple series, like you said, this game were bad. So it's just really head scratching. It really is. And it's interesting that you brought up the first couple of series because, I mean, for the most part this year, that is the only time the offense has been pretty successful is all the scripted plays that Neil Brown likes to start games with. But, uh, yeah, I mean, not the case against Minnesota. We looked god-awful to start that game and started the game with six straight passes. I just, I just can't fathom that. Um, but let's talk about the running game a little bit. I thought West Virginia's running game was okay. Tony Mathis had 56 yards and 24 receiving yards on top of that. Just, uh, yeah, Justin Johnson, he had a couple of nice carries, which resulted in 35 total yards, but they just abandoned a run-heavy strategy from the very beginning. So even though these guys didn't get a ton of touches, I thought they did all right overall. I mean, Tony had 18 total touches, so that might seem like a decent amount, but only 13 of those were carries I mean on a day where your quarterback was consistently being pressured and sacked West Virginia decided to give their lead back 13 carries I just don't understand that strategy and here's the thing also the Mountaineers lost this game by 12 points this game was never a blowout so I mean there was never a reason to give up on the run there's just no excuses for some of the decisions made by the coaching staff to well not today but during the bowl game yeah, and the dis- distribution of plays was really strange, too. I mean, the first quarter, eight passes, three runs. Um, on those eight passes, we were three for six, two sacks. Um, including the sack yardage, we were a net negative nine yards passing. 
Um, I did not count those sack yardage against the running game because I, I I don't think that's fair. I like the way the NFL does it where you subtract it from the uh, passing game. So that's what I'm doing here. Uh, three runs for 15 yards. That's five yards a carry. That's great. But mm-hmm. still, only three carries. Why aren't you doing it more? Uh, the second quarter, we ran 16 or we ran uh, a lot more plays. Instead of 11, we ran 27 plays. But 16 of them were passes on those nine of 14 with one sack. 11 rushes, the efficiency went down on those rushes, but we were still above three yards per carry. We had 34 yards rushing. Um, and on those 14 pass attempts, 87 yards and one interception. Um, so that's I'm trying to do the math in my head, maybe like five yards per attempt, which isn't very good. Um, and then the third quarter, 10 passes to five rushes again. On those 10 passes, two more sacks, four of eight, um, only 32 yards net passing. Um, so that's three yards per attempt, basically. And you ran the ball five times for 31 yards rushing. Um, that's six yards per carry. Again, that's great. Why aren't we doing it more? And then the fourth quarter, we ran two plays or four plays. So, um, no passing yards, 19 rushing yards. Um, it just doesn't make any sense because if you look at the numbers, it looks like rushing lanes were open. You know, if you're averaging even four yards per carry, you do that three times in a row, it's a first down. (coughs) So, I'm really hope you know, I really don't understand it. And I understand that Mathis hasn't played a lot. Johnson's a freshman, but that now is a good time to give him a tryout, see what you have. Um, so it was just really confusing because like you said, it you really need to have that running game. Cause if you're being that aggressive up front, that running game, you're going to have lanes and the stats show that you had lanes to run through. Yeah. And they showed against Kansas. They weren't afraid to give Tony a ton of carries. So I mean, I can't even say that that might have been in the back of their head. I mean, and he hasn't had a ton of carries on the year, so he would have been fresh. He wouldn't have been beat up still from the Kansas game a month earlier. And I it just wasn't like, get it. Yeah, and it, and it wasn't like Minnesota's defense was bad against the pass this year. Like, they are very good against the run and the pass. So either which, no matter which way you attacked, you know, you're going up against a team that has been successful against both running and passing. You just chose to attack the the secondary instead of the, you know, front seven. And it looks like they kind of chose wrong because maybe whatever they saw on the tape, you know, just wasn't meant to be. Now, there were a couple plays that I will give them that could have made the passing game look a lot better. Um, there were a couple plays where Jared Deggy threw the ball down to a receiver, um, you know, see if he could win a one-on-one battle and the receiver couldn't win the one-on-one battle. And that's one of the things that I noted in our preview podcast is, you know, Minnesota isn't great, but they're not bad anywhere. You have to win the one-on-one matchups. And, you know, sometimes you have to throw it up to your receiver and they have to win that. No one was winning those. So that's going to hurt the passing game a little bit too. But whenever you see that's not happening, that's more evidence as a coach that you should start running the ball more, which even after halftime, we ran the ball seven times, passed the ball 12. That's still a two-to-one pass-to-run ratio. And it just seems unacceptable. Yeah. 100% agree. And uh, you brought up the wide receivers. None of our wide receivers had a great day, but I mean, how can you when when your quarterback only threw for 140 yards? The leader was Sam James with 40 yards. And unfortunately, it'll be the, the, you know, the last game for a few of them. Sean Ryan graduated. And uh, we'll dive into this more after we talk about the defense a little bit. But Winston Wright has announced he will not be returning to West Virginia next season because he's entering the transfer portal. So, um, I mean, you kind of touched on it. Do you have any more thoughts on just how the wide receivers performed? Yeah, uh, just a little bit more. Um, You know, 
at first I was kind of disappointed not to see Caden Prather out there, but um, it was announced that he had COVID um, on the Stedman Bailey interview and maybe some other places. He had COVID during the practice week and he showed up to uh, Arizona late. So that explains why he didn't play. Um, but I was kind of surprised by the usage of Reese Smith, especially so much where he saw some a snaps over Winston Wright. Now, in hindsight, a little bit, maybe it makes a little bit of sense. Maybe the coaching staff knew that uh, Winston was transferring or something. I don't know. But, you know, it, it just during the game, I was so irritated where we were finding ways to get Reese Smith on the on the field and not some of our more athletic, talented players like even Sam James. He, Sam James was out there a lot because we were running four wide receiver sets. But, you know, if Prather was healthy, why isn't he playing? Why is Reese Smith taking snaps away from Winston Wright, who's our best receiver? Um, Smith played well. It, it's fine. You know, he, he's an OK player, but he's not really dynamic. He's not someone who really makes you go out there and think that he's going to bust something open that's going to help the team score some points. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, Reese Smith did have a couple of nice plays. His best play he fumbled on, but, uh, you know, Tony got it back, so it wasn't a big deal. But, uh, yeah, at the time it was definitely a head scratcher. But in hindsight, like uh, Stedman told us during the interview, Prather, you know, didn't play because of COVID. And, uh, you know, with right transferring, we don't know if, you know, something happened prior to that or maybe during the game there was something that happened. Who knows? But, uh, yeah, it, it's hard to say. So uh, let's talk about our defense a little bit. It was classic bend but don't break defense for the Mountaineers. And, you know, that's been their theme all year. But, honestly, it does work for us. Typically the defense gives our team a chance to win. So um, I don't have a lot of complaints. They allowed a ton of rushing yards, but it only resulted in 18 points and they forced two turnovers. Minnesota could have scored at the end of that game. Um, but, you know, P.J. Fleck was classy and chose to kneel it several times. So um, on paper, it might, you know, it might have been a little worse than what it looked like if you're just looking at the box score. But um, nobody's putting this loss on West Virginia's defense. So how do you feel like they performed? I thought they performed fine. Um, you know, one of the things I wrote about in one of my preview articles about this was I really wished WV would have played more heavier front seven sets, you know, maybe more like a four, three or a three, four look, maybe even like a five, two, um, because Minnesota's offensive line is so good. You need to kind of, you know, create those mismatches. And as we kind of saw in the game, you know, the secondary could handle everything. I mean, they let a couple 20 yard passes, but that was really it. We held them to what, like less than 110 yards. Um, and, you know, those big plays kind of happened because we're running those, I guess you would call them substitution package looks where we're running three down linemen, three linebackers, extra safeties. And with as big and physical as Minnesota is, um, you know, they just, they love that. You know, whenever you're a six foot eight, 370 pound guy facing up against the linebacker, I mean, or a safety, you know, you're, you're licking your chops. You want that block. You, you want that highlight. So um, I think that's part of the reason why we allowed so many running games or runs is because, one, I don't think we have very many linebackers right now. And two, you know, we always kind of play out that substitution sort of package look, which against a team like Minnesota, um, you know, they can take advantage of that. So, um, again, it's not like really a critique. It's just like I would like to see them add something new to the fold. And it would have been interesting to experiment in that game. Um, but really the only thing. Um, on the defense I can complain about is the safety play. The safety play wasn't very good. Um, 
we allowed five plays over 20 yards two over 30. Um, and you know, three of the big plays were because safeties just weren't playing safety. They like sprinted straight up the field and then the running back would just run horizontally around them. And then we'd have to have someone chasing down from behind instead of the safety playing the, the safety role, the namesake and, you know, being that last line of defense and stopping that big play from happening. And it's disappointing because, you know, a has been there for, you know, he's been playing college football now for six years. Mahone's been there for five years. Um, you know, you'd like to see less big plays like that, especially because, you know, you're safe because of your safety play, but you know, in the end, it didn't really kill us. It was only 18 points. So, but um, hoping that that's something we can get fixed in the future, just because big plays can end up hurting you real quick. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, they didn't pass a lot in the second half, but when they chose to pass in the first half, they were actually hitting some pretty deep plays uh, with their passing game. So, yeah, definitely secondary could have stepped up and played a little better. Um, I also saw just a quick note. I think it was Thomas from Minnesota. Their halfback is in the transfer portal. Really? Yeah, which makes sense because, you know, all those guys in front of them who are going to come back healthy. But, uh, yeah, they definitely have some talented running backs there. But, hey, huge, huge shout-out to Sean Mahone for breaking the record for most games ever played at WVU (laughs) with 55. Um, Sean is a four-time first-team academic All-Big 12 selection. He was a Campbell Trophy finalist, which is essentially the Heisman for academic excellence for an athlete. And just a solid career for a young man with a bright future. So I wish him all the best. And thank you for your time at West Virginia, Sean. Yeah, that's a great call. I didn't know that. That's that's great for him. And, you know, he was really solid for most of his career. I mean, um, you know, obviously not a perfect player, not somebody who's going to play on Sundays. But, I mean, he was someone out there who he was just rock solid all year round, all, you know, all year, all year round, every play. And he was always healthy, too. I don't remember him ever really getting banged up. So, uh Really tough, especially when you're playing the the role of safety that he's playing, where he's playing much more in the box than you are, you know, in the back. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, um, you know, I don't think the NFL will be calling for him. But heck, you know, with everything we just said, it doesn't sound like he needs to go to the NFL to make money. He's a very bright young man. And, uh, you know, just one of those players you've never heard a complaint from. Not from the media, not from coaches. So... Uh, just a solid guy to have on your team. So good luck to him. And I'm glad he had a great career here at West Virginia. Definitely. So, um, you know, I kind of want to talk about some stuff that's going to tie in with the transfer portal. So do you have anything other than that? No, that was it. All right. So let's get into it. With all of this transfer portal news, it, it's good to hear that Stills and Chandler Semedo is returning next season. The D-line should be solid with having Stills back and, of course, Mesador. And having Chandler Semedo at linebacker is always good news. Obviously, we aren't happy with uh, you know some of his coverage skills at the beginning of this season, but it improved throughout the year. And, and he was just a solid old-school middle linebacker who fills up the stat sheet with tackles. So the kid's just an absolute athlete because, as most fans remember, Middle linebacker wasn't his original position. And so, um, you know, he still has room to improve. So the fact that he's coming back next year, I'm pretty pumped about that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like you said, you did hit the nail on the head early in the season. You know, teams were attacking him over the middle, but it seemed like towards the end of the season, he really put the work in and figured it out. 
Um, he had two picks against Kansas. I know it's Kansas, but still, you know, it's something. And even before those games, you know, he was a lot better. He wasn't getting lost in coverage. So um, I'm really, really excited to see what he can do next year. Cause you know, even though he's not super tall, I think he's only like five eleven, um, like two twenty-five if I'm right about his measurables. Um, you know, if he has a good enough season, puts on a little bit more muscle, maybe he gets a look as a as a practice squad player. Um, who knows? I mean, guys who make tackles and aren't complete liabilities in coverage get signed all the time. Uh, middle linebackers get hurt all the time. That's the that's the guy making all the tackles on the field. So you're gonna catch some uh nicks and bruises there. So really excited to have him back. Yeah, 100 percent It's just one less thing we have to worry about heading into next season. Um, but some of the bad news with transfer portal is unfortunately Jackie Matthews announced he is transferring and he was a quality utility secondary player. You could just plug him in at safety or corner and he'd give you, you know, solid production there. So his absence might be missed next year because you could always use a guy like that, uh, you know, with injuries, with whatever, if, if you just need to move someone around and plug them in. But, uh, you know, we won't have them anymore. And, you know, there's lots of other guys transferring, too. So it's definitely an issue. What do you think about that? Yeah, I definitely think it, it hurts a lot because especially when we're losing both our starting safeties, um, now we're losing all three, basically. And he's someone who could have provided some stability to that group, especially since we'll be playing a lot more young guys. Um, I am glad that St. McLeod has started seeing snaps later in the season because that's going to help out a lot. But still, he he was only a freshman. Um, so I was really hoping that Matthews could come back and fill in for the, you know, Mahone role. Um, and then all we have to do is replace our free safety, but now replacing two guys, especially the two who play a little bit more off ball than typically on ball, um, it makes it tough and it makes your back end more susceptible to those big plays. We talked about how those two safety positions were kind of the ones that were the leading reason why we let big plays against Minnesota. And now we're going to be replacing them with potentially redshirt freshmen, sophomores, maybe even true freshmen. Um, so going up against someone like Pitt early on with Kelvin Slovis, um, who knows what could happen. I just hope we don't see them beat us deep over the middle because I think having someone like Jackie Matthews back there would have helped at least provide some uh, a good transition to whoever would be next. Yeah, 100%. And, um, you know, now we're in early January. I'm hoping this is the last that we have to discuss the transfer portal. But we all know in the state of college football nowadays, um, high chance that this is not the last time we're going to be discussing someone leaving the program. So, um, you know, we had an interview with Stedman Bailey the other day. If you guys haven't listened to it yet, please check it out. You know, I thought Stedman was a great guest um, and was very honest. He didn't hold anything back. And I thought he was fair and, and everything that he said. And I, I think we just need to acknowledge it that, you know, the transfers are becoming an issue. You know, I was even in the boat at first that with all these guys leaving that that's just the nature of college football. And it certainly is, but um, it, it definitely seems like there is an issue going on with the Mountaineer program. And obviously we don't know we're, we're not in those locker rooms, but um, you know, even Stedman was kind of saying that he's talking to the players and that there does seem to be some issues going on in the locker room between coaches and players. Yeah. And it's really strange to me that, you know, we're having these players reach out to other players to kind of voice their concerns and figure out what to do. Um, you know, the coaches on the coaching staff should be the ones who are able to 
help guide the players through those situations and talk to them. And whenever players are, you know, reaching out to someone else for help, that just kind of goes to show that there's either that, you know, like Stedman said, there's some sort of disconnect between them. So maybe the coaches don't feel like they're approachable or maybe they're just too stern or just too cold and say, if you don't like it, then go. Um, And that's not the right way to go about things. You know, we were messaging in our group chat um, about kind of this whole situation. And um, it's just really interesting because, you know, we're seeing starters transfer out. We're seeing other players transfer out. We, you know, it's not always best for the starter to transfer out either because you don't know what you're going to end up in, but you know, what are you kind of running from too? Um, And, you know, with this transfer stuff too, too, it's really interesting too, that we're hearing so much silence from the coaching staff, not really addressing it. Um, You know, and I don't know if that's because Neil Brown has traditionally been um, a smaller school guy, um, hasn't really had the responsibility to kind of manage a whole team before of, you know, this quality of people where if you're, you're coaching at Troy and you have a recruiting class of players who typically go to Troy, um, you know, those guys have a little bit more of a chip on their shoulder. You can be a little bit more, you know, hard nosed with them. You can not saying like old fashioned and screaming, but like you can be a little bit more stern with them. You can draw the line somewhere and say, you know, this is, if you, if you want out, they go, you know, because where else are they going to transfer? Like Sam Houston state. Um, but here at WVU, these guys are quality guys who had offers from other power five schools all over the country. But you draw the line, you know, somewhere here. And it's something that's unacceptable to that player because they want that extra step. They want that communication or they want that relationship. Then they're going to go because they know they can walk out the door and get another power five offer tomorrow um, or even, you know, a, a G five offer tomorrow. And they could still end up going pro if they shine out. So it's just really interesting that the coaching staff's not talking about it. Um, we keep on hearing more names pop up. We keep on hearing uncertainty about other players, you know, like someone like Bryce Ford Wheaton, who deleted the tweet said that he was coming back for next year, um, which is really weird. Cause he's a legacy guy. And if you would transfer, how do you screw that up? Um, as a fan, it, it just, there's just so many different things. And all we hear is silence. All we hear is media people like us, um, say things that we're just speculating. And the only way you can quiet speculation is by having someone in the know or with power coming out and saying things. And unfortunately, the only people that we've heard is Stedman. Um, and he only knows from talking with the players. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what do you say if you're a head coach? But it is kind of weird that they do just kind of never acknowledge the elephant in the room. Like, even if they don't want to tell us what's going on behind the scenes, they just seem to never come out and have any comment on it. You know, whether it's, it's just a real quick, Hey, I wish them all the best. Not sure what happened moving on, but yeah. uh, you know, I just wish they would give us a little more. Maybe that's just us being greedy, but Stebman brought up a good point too. It is a fine line between catering to prima donnas and, you know, being so hard that the players think you don't care. It is tricky. It's why it's hard to be a coach. That's why these guys get paid millions of dollars. It's a tough job. But um, I, I think you're right. The coaches do have to adjust. It's a new NCAA. It's it's not the same old NCAA we grew up with. Kids can just leave whenever they want now. Um, and and so you, I, I think they do need to adjust a little bit. And because whatever they're doing is not working. 
And not just with guys leaving, but like we talked about earlier, what's on the field's not working either. So they do need to start adjusting and really self-reflecting on what's happening with the program. Um, and I think it's one thing too to you know draw you know inspiration from like what Huggins is doing. Yeah, he's you know brash sometimes. He's hard. He'll push you. He has a treadmill. He does all these things that people perceive as negative things, but he loves you. Like he will go out there and spend that extra mile to tell you what you need to do to get better. If you want to leave, he'll tell you, okay, well that might be best for you because you just don't fit here, but I still care about you and I hope you the best. We don't even kind of hear that here, you know? And it's just really weird that it, you know, we see all this stuff on social media, like there's team dinners, there's things over the summer and spring where there's all these team building exercises and it looks like everyone's a big family. And then, everyone's leaving the family. It, it's just two different pictures that just doesn't make sense where with Huggins, you know, something's up because he's going to say it. And then you have 16 players transfer out. And then he brings up a whole new team, um, you know, because he knows that it just doesn't work where with Brown, it's just kind of like it's happening. I'm going to fix it eventually. And it's a question mark, not a statement. <laughs> yeah. 100%. And, um, you know, again, yeah, it is concerning because uh, these guys are starters, some of them leaving, like Winston Wright. Like, why is he leaving? And we've even talked about, like, the track record. A lot of these guys who have left in recent years aren't exactly going on to have success elsewhere. And the players know that. So the fact that they know that and they're still bolting from a team that they know they're going to get a lot of playing time on is definitely it's eyebrow raising to say the least, but at the same time, Neil Brown is recruiting well. And so he does have interpersonal skills with people. So the question is, what's the disconnect between those recruiting skills? And then once they're here. Yeah. I just can't put my finger on that either. I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know if it's something like broken promises or if it's, you know, it could be something that small, but I mean, promises mean a lot to people. Once you break that trust, it's hard to go back or maybe it's something where it's, you know, inconsistent uh, ap- you know, application of rules or something like that, or, you know, just expecting more from one player over another. Um, it's it, like, like we said, it's all speculation right now. And, you know, you can come up with a million different excuses on why it's falling apart, but until we have more information or until we have someone come in and take accountability, like if Brown would have a press conference tomorrow and say, Hey, I know all this stuff is concerning. It's my fault. I'm going to change it. I'm going to fix it. I think that would help out a lot, but we don't even get that. Uh, Even if it is a bold faced lie when he says that, I think that would buy some time and calm a lot of people's souls. Yeah. Well, also I think, you know, I don't know if this would hurt or help because maybe some of these guys recruited specific players, but also are there going to be any coaching changes in this off season on the offensive side of the ball, at least. I mean, obviously, I'm sure every fan would be okay if defense stayed pat because they've been performing well. But for three straight years, our offense has not been impressive. And what are we going to do? Just come back with the same exact coaching staff who's underperformed for several years? I just don't understand that if you're Coach Brown. I know you start forming these special relationships with coaches, and it's hard to fire people. But at the same time, I mean, he's getting down to the nitty gritty where, I mean, he is going to be on the hot seat maybe next year or the year after. 
And is he just going to keep rolling out the same offensive game plan that hasn't worked for three straight years? Like, um, I'm thinking maybe if he just shook some things up that maybe he could win over um, some players and some support that way. Yeah, I think that's a great point, too. I mean, you can't bring back the same staff next year. And the thing is with coordinators, too, is they're usually on year to year contracts. You have to be really special to get a multi year contract. So I'm 99% sure that every single one of our assistant coaches is on a one year deal. So they would have to be renewed. But if they all are re- renewed for next year, I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to know what to expect for next year, even though, you know, some of the players that we don't want to come back aren't coming back. Um, it really doesn't fix too much of an issue. I would be really surprised if we brought everyone back and we saw improvement because a lot of the symptoms that we're showing of this dysfunctional program have to be because of the assistance. I mean, we hear from really what three coaches at press conferences, Leslie, mm-hmm. um, Parker and Brown. Um, everyone else is just kind of in the background. And, you know, some of them you see do a lot of stuff with recruiting like Trickett. Um but other than that, it's just, you know, we don't know these guys and they're just coaches and their position groups aren't doing anything. Um, but that kind of transitions into my next session for you, which is a question on who stays and who goes. So uh, I'm going to go through the list of coaches that we have, and I want your opinion on who you would bring back and who you would fire. So first off, I'm going to throw you a softball. Matt Moore, offensive line. What are you doing with him? Oh, man, he's got to go. I'm sorry, Matt Moore. But uh, And I know the offensive line did improve in the second half of the year a little bit, at least compared to how they played in the first half of the year. But um, our offensive line just has not impressed me at all in the past couple years. And so, like I said, you got to shake it up, and that's not working. So that's an easy one for me. You got to go. I agree. Next one, another easy one. Jordan Leslie, defensive coordinator. Oh, man, of course you keep him. He's probably the best coach in the entire staff right now, <laughs> including our head coach. Uh, Gerard Parker, offensive coordinator slash wide receivers coach. Honestly, I would let Parker go for for a couple reasons. One, the play calling isn't great. Now, you could argue he's not the one calling the plays. Well, then why the heck see your offensive coordinator? That person's supposed to call your offensive plays. And two... um wide receiver coach you know i might be a little biased now but a guy like stedman and i'm sure there's other hot names out there you could bring in for a wide receiver coach um that i think would give us some improvement our wide receiver core has been you know pretty decent the past few years but i definitely feel like we've had guys with better skill sets that aren't putting up the numbers that should reflect it yeah i agree with that 100 percent. the next one going back to the defense Shadon Brown, co-defensive coordinator slash defensive backs coach. This is the the guy who replaced Jamila Dye. So, <laughs> I mean, he's only had what one year. So, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think our secondary was fantastic this year, but I definitely think they improved a lot, especially in the later part of the season. And the fact that he's only been here a year, you know, he doesn't have a track record like some of these other guys we've talked about. I, I would keep them. I would have no problem if they kept them around. Yeah, I could see that. I had them as a goes just because we did have some issues with transfers earlier in the year from the uh, secondary, but a lot of that is because they had relationships with the die. So I, I wouldn't care either way. 
Um, next one, Chad Scott, co-offensive coordinator slash running backs coach. Yeah, I don't mind Chad Scott, to be honest with you. I mean, um, they call him co-offensive coordinator, but once again, is he calling plays? Like, I don't understand these titles <laughs> if they aren't doing what the titles are. That's like saying I'm linebackers coach and I work with tight ends. It's like, are you even doing what the title of your job is? Is that just for pay purposes? I like, think maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it, it must be. But yeah, I have no problem with Coach Scott. And um, honestly, you know, our halfbacks have, have played well the last few years. So yeah, keep them. Yeah, I agree 100%. I had him as a stay too. Um, like you said, the running back. I mean, Tony Mathis stepped in and just picked right right up where Teletti left off. So coaching for sure. Um, Jeff Coons, special teams coordinator slash inside linebacker coach. So, you know, our special teams <laughs> always get a bad rap, but honestly, you know, I'm doing this with West Virginia standards <laughs> and <laughs> watching West Virginia football for the past 20 plus years. It seems like we always have muff punts and a lot of bonehead special team plays. And honestly, this year, I mean, of course, we had a couple. We allowed a kick return for a touchdown you know, stuff here and there. I thought our special teams was all right this year for the most part. So I have no problem keeping him around. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, four more, Andrew Jackson, defensive line. Yeah, defensive line. I mean, we heard some rumors about him towards the beginning of the year when some of the guys were transferring out. Um, He's new, that, too. This is his first year. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in the same boat there, too. It's his first year. And, uh, I mean, who's complaining about defensive line play? Obviously, that might be because he had a lot of special guys to work with right off the bat. But, uh, you know, to me, he hasn't done anything to to be let go. Yeah, I like him, too. He came from, I think, he came from a smaller school where he was a defensive line coach. And, you know, he had a pretty good job there. So I think he definitely deserves another year. Um, Sean Reagan, QB's coach. <laughs> See, that's a tricky one because um, has he been here all three years with Neil Brown? I think maybe two. Okay, so he had two years to work with Jared Dagey. So, the yeah, I mean, the big question is, was the reason Jared Dagey never really progressed his fault? Or is that just because Jared Dagey's limited? Um, I, I would say let him come back next year and see how he does with this very talented and young group of quarterbacks we got. And honestly, you know, if they all fall flat on their face next year, then that dude's got to go. Yeah, I had him as a goes. Um, partially one of it was because... Not only Jared Deggy not really progressing, but also, you know, having two years with Garrett Green and, you know, some of his opportunity with Green. But we saw a lot of mistakes out there pretty consistently with Green and a lot of it's correctable stuff, like being able to take a snap. Um, <laughs> yeah, your QB coach could help out with that, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's one of those ones I wouldn't really care either way. You can make an argument on both sides. Yeah, definitely. Um, next one, Travis Trickett, tight end slash inside wide receivers coach. Definitely keep him around. <laughs> the oh, Tricketts yeah, are, are great coaches, just a good football family. 100% keep him. Great recruiter, too. Oh, and yeah. The last one is Dante Wright, safeties coach. So, um, yeah, once again, how long has he been there? I want to say this is maybe his first year. Maybe it's his second. I'm not exactly sure. I was going to say first as well, but yeah, I'm not 100% sure about that. I would say the same reason we talked about, you know, 
the secondary coach earlier. I'd say keep him around, see what he can do. Um, secondary improved in the later half of the year. So, you know, you don't want coaches consistently going in and out, but some of these guys have definitely had more than enough time to do something, and I'm just not seeing good results from them. Definitely, yeah. I mean, most of the stays on my end are on defense. I mean, I think that's where our strength is. I think that Leslie has a great group there. I think he has good diversity. It's not just guys that he's familiar with. It's guys that, you know, can do a variety of different things. And, um, you know, bringing Shadon Brown, which is probably more of a Neil Brown hire because, you know, I think they have some sort of relationship there. But Dante Wright, I don't think he had any connection with the program. Andrew Jackson didn't. So Leslie's going out there and bringing in just the best guys. Um, and it's showing our, our defense is getting better. We're having young players step up and playing great. And it's kind of the opposite for the offense where everyone on that offensive staff has been with Neil Brown basically every step of the way on his career. And we need we need new faces like we need something new because it's just not working. Yeah, honestly, I mean, I try to watch the press conferences every week and I watch all three guys, Parker, Leslie and Brown. And to me, Leslie just has head coach written all over him. I might just be reading into that too much because of the way he carries himself. But I mean, he's an excellent defensive coordinator. When he talks, he just has that it thing about him that just seems like a head coach. If you ask me, we'll be lucky to have him one or two more years and someone's going to snatch him up. Oh, yeah. I was surprised when Troy didn't take him. Um, You know, I I guess Troy likes their coaches from Kentucky because that's, you know, what they got with Brown. But it seems like they couldn't have lost with Leslie. I mean, he he's has a proven track record. Um, he's from Troy, I think, or a, a Troy alumni. So, I mean, you can't really get much better than that. But I'm not complaining that he's coming back because he's someone I don't want to lose. Not yet. Yeah, 100%. Former college player, too. So, I mean, he knows. I mean, so is Coach Brown. But, I mean, I don't know. Something about Coach Leslie just tells me that he's going to be a good head coach. Oh, yeah, I think so, too. He, he's He's a bright, young, young coach. Yep. Yep. So, um, that was fun. Is that it? Yeah, that's what I had. <laughs> All right, cool. You ready to get into basketball? Let's do it. All right. So let's talk about basketball a little bit. The West Virginia Mountaineers lost to Texas 74 to 59. The Mountaineers were down three players due to COVID protocol, including leading scorer Taz Sherman and the heart and soul of this team, Gabe Osaboyan. Plus, Kobe Johnson, who averages 11 minutes per game and could have provided some significant playing time with Taz being out. So um, it's a tough way to start conference play. But, you know, this this shouldn't be surprising that we lost with those three guys out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, there are a lot of little things that kind of led to us losing. But I, there, there are a couple good things that I saw, too. I and mean, we didn't lose the rebounding battle. Um we shot a decent, decent, decent amount from the field. I know uh, Texas actually has the seventh best defense per advanced metrics in the country. Um, they're t- typically holding teams to about a 45% effective field goal percentage. And as a team, we actually scored at a 48% effective field goal percentage rate. Um, it was, you know, just turnovers and things like that, um, that really doomed us. So, um, you know, overall, it didn't look good, but I think there are some really good takeaways that we could get from that game for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The story to me was the the first half, good ball movement very early on in the first half, some nice outside shooting by many different players, but then the offense just sputtered out very quickly. 
and they weren't getting good looks. Credit to Texas. They're a very good defensive team. But the game started out 14-14, to and then Texas went on an 18-2 to run in the first half. So, you know, West Virginia's defense had its moments, five blocks in the first half, but only gave up three free throws, which is good. But they gave Texas way too many open looks from three. Texas went six for 11 for three in the first half. 15 of 30 from the field um, and they scored 39 points in the first half. So that's just unacceptable, especially when you're missing your leading score and you know, your offense production is going to be down. So Cottrell bridges and McNeil were all negative 19 at halftime. Yikes. That's, you know, come on. You're not going to win when that happens and season high in turnovers with just 13 minutes left in the game. Um, it was 17, and that's what West Virginia ended up with for the game, I believe, was 17 total turnovers, a season high. But the reason I focused so much on the first half performance was because West Virginia was down 19 at the half without their leading score. Everyone knew the game was over at that point. You can't make up that deficit without Taz. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the one thing that I thought was kind of interesting, uh, maybe not necessarily interesting, but I, I thought this was kind of just a bad game for Sean um, just because I think Texas got him to take shots that they wanted him to take. He was two for two from three, but he took two threes. I mean, he shot eight mid range jumpers and only made one of them. That's where teams want him to shoot because it's a two point shot. You know, he's a sharpshooter, but you, you want, you want to get Sean taking shots from behind the three point line because they're more valuable shots one and two, because he can hit those shots at a high clip. Um, and, you know, even though he did score 12 points, you know, I would like to see him take some of those mid-range shots and either push them closer to the rim or push them further out to the three-point line. He did, you know, he does have a penchant, and I hate it as kind of an analytics-driven guy where he'll take a, he'll, he'll do a pump fake or a little move. He'll take one step inside the three-point line and pull up a jumper. And it just drives me crazy because it's like you're six inches away from an extra point. Why are you doing that? And, you know, I understand, you know, maybe that's what the defense is giving you, but that they're giving it to you for a reason. Cause even if you make that shot, you know, if you shoot threes at 40% clip, that's good for three. But if you're shooting 40% from two, that's not very good. So they'll give you that shot as much as you want it. Um, another thing with Sean is, is that, you know, he's not very good defensively and he was definitely the worst defender um, on the court in against in the Texas game. And that's, partially because Texas is very guard heavy. Um, it also hurt that, you know, Keddy wasn't playing extremely well either. He did have four assists, but he also had four turnovers. And if Keddy isn't really being elite defensively, I think he was solid, but he wasn't really elite. Um, Marcus Carr led for scoring. He's basically Keddy's assignment. Um, so if Keddy's not defending and you have Sean out there a lot because you need Sean out there for his offense, I think you need to have another guy out there that you can plug in for Keddy as another defensive option, because you can't have two guards back there that are, you know, one of them is having an above average game. And one of them is just a, a, a negative on defense because against teams like Texas and maybe even Kansas state where they're guard heavy, they're going to punish you. They're just going to attack you over and over and over again. And if they don't get the matchup that they want, they're just going to run screens and switch until they get onto the matchup that they like. Um, it's just basketball. And, you know, I know we did get to see um, Curry a lot this game, but, and Curry did fine, but I want to see who that next elite guard is because I think we have some really interesting options with Seth Wilson and, unfortunately, Kobe Johnson, who was out. 
Yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, Sean is, you know, not the best defender. He never really has been. But the big thing with Sean is, you know, I've never seen him as a number one scorer. And I'm sure most people don't. You know, he's just a great number two or number three on your team. And when you're missing a guy like Taz, who is your number one scorer, you know, it puts Sean in a tough position, a position I don't think, you know, he can really fill the shoes as a number one scorer. So um, it, it is frustrating. But, um, you know, one good thing, I've been saying it all season, if you're looking for a silver lying, lining this game, um, it's good that other players got a chance to carry the workload scoring. Jalen Bridges stepped up and had an 18-point game, shot 63% from the field and 57% from three. Just had a nice overall game. Six rebounds, three steals, a block. WVU can get Taz, McNeil, and Bridges putting up high-volume shots. I like our chances of winning um, because I trust those guys to make a majority of the shots they put up. This is what we've been waiting for all year is just for Jalen to let it go and to actually shoot. Um, he seemed a little gun shy early about shooting the ball in the first half, but, um, you know, maybe the first half of the season, I should say, but maybe this is the type of game he needed to finally turn his season around. Yeah. And I still don't think he shot the ball enough. I mean, I know he had a great game, but, um, I was looking at, again, I'm an analytics guy. So I was looking at usage and he was still behind, uh, Malik Curry, Isaiah Cottrell, Polly Polycap, and Sean McNeil in usage percentage. Um, and basically what that's a measure of is shot attempts, assists, turnovers, um, free throws divided by minutes, some sort of combination of those things. So it, it's weighted by minutes. So if you only play a couple minutes, but you put up four shots, then your usage rate is going to be through the roof. But, you know, he was still only fifth in usage on the, on the team. And, you know, I would like to see him, like you said, up there around third because he's just super efficient. Um, even when he was taking more shots than he has maybe all year you know, putting up 50%, 57% from the field is outrageous. Uh, I want to see him shoot until he's shooting in the mid forties. If that's 20 shots at the game, I'll take 20 shots a game. Um, I think he has all the ability in the world to, to be that third scorer that we need. And Hey, maybe even the second scorer, and you create even more room off the ball for Sean. So really, really excited about that. Um, and I know his shots weren't really falling, but I like to, I like seeing that Cottrell shot the ball nine times again just having that confidence to shoot it, knowing that you have the green light and trying. Um, I love seeing that those other players are stepping up and trying whenever we uh, needed them. Yeah, 100%. We were even talking about Cottrell on the last podcast about being gun shy as well and that we just want them. Just put them up. If you miss them, you miss them. But, you know, put the shots up. And you're 100% right about Bridges. I want to see him just keep shooting. Him and McNeil, I just want them... Anytime you have any little bit of space, just put a shot up and I'll be okay with it because Taz is going to do his thing. And those other two are just great shooters. I mean, even his shot just looks so pretty when he puts it up there. You can tell. I mean, that's just a natural score. And so um, I I hope we see more of it. I'm actually hoping that this loss is what really brings us together and makes us a complete team. Finally, I honestly think this game was kind of like a blessing in disguise. Definitely. Yeah. I, I really don't take this loss. I know the, the, um, you know, the advanced metrics ranking companies like the net and RPI or whatever, um, kind of knocked us pretty bad for the loss, but I don't think it was really a bad loss. I mean, we were without our most important defensive player, our most important offensive player, 
And, you know, if we don't turn the ball over 20 times, it's probably, it could very well be a, you know, a single digit loss. Um, that's kind of how I looked at it. And and another player we haven't mentioned yet is Malik Curry, who put up 14 points and a couple assists. I mean, um, he's a guy who I think if he shows early that his shot is fallen and he's feeling it and he has that lane to, to drive in there and make those left-handed layups, he's someone you can consistently give 25 minutes a night to. But if it's not fallen, then, you know, you have enough guards on the team to kind of figure out who the next guy is. But tonight, alert um, against Texas, his shot was going. And, uh, you know, he just showed how efficient he can be whenever uh, he has the ball in his hands. Yeah, 100%. I agree with you. I'm, I'm not super discouraged about losing the Texas game at all. Anybody who thought that we really had a good chance of winning that without Taz Sherman is kidding themselves. You know, he's a third of our scoring output most of the time. And, uh, you know, plus no Gabe Osaboyan. We all know what a difference he makes on the defensive side of the ball. But uh, even on the offensive side, setting screens, chipping in on the scoring, getting assists, getting the other team in foul trouble. You know, don't uh, don't knock what Gabe can do on offense as well for our team. So no one should be discouraged by this loss. I, I agree with that. Yeah. And the only other kind of takeaway that I I took is a takeaway that I've said before, and that's we, we still really don't have a lead primary ball handler. Like I know Keddy kind of does it and his passing is solid but he's mostly out there for defensive purposes. We still, you know, that game, we only had nine assists to 20 turnovers. Um, I can't, that, that there can't be too many games with this season where we've had anywhere close to a two to one assist to turnover ratio from a guard. Um, and, you know, maybe Taz is someone who can handle that role, but a guy I'm really looking at, and again, unfortunately he wasn't playing, who kind of fits that mold, I think, who can play a little bit of defense, who has a nice shot, who has a nice type, a nice type ball handling, um, who should be able to be a good passer is Kobe Johnson. I think the door is wide open for him to take that lead guard spot through Big 12 play because his combination of size and shot making and ball handling, I, I think, you know, you can go in there, you can have uh, Keddy sub in as kind of a defensive specialist, and then you can bring in Curry off the bench as a spark plug. And that would work out great because then, you know, it just allows the offense to flow a little bit better. For sure. And, uh, you know, it's a shame he was out as well, because this could have been a, a great game to get him a lot of minutes and a lot of experience. So um, that might have been the most disappointing part about this whole game. It wasn't the loss. It was that, you know, Kobe didn't get a chance to get all of that experience that the other guys did without Taz in there, um, you know, putting up most of the offense. Oh, yeah. And I have so such high expectations. It's probably never going to be reached. I'm being you know, completely unfair to Kobe, but I mean, you got the name, you got the frame. It's <laughs> like a shirt that says that. That's, that's the seller right there. Um, but yeah, the same with Bridges. Kobe just has a, a nice shot. I mean, sometimes you just see someone put up a shot and then they just look like, you know, God-given talent that they just have that pure motion. I don't know. He, he just has it to me. Yeah. And that's tough. Um, you can't teach that. Yeah, 100%. So West Virginia has Kansas State coming up this Saturday at 2 o'clock. Just glancing at K-State's schedule, it doesn't look like they have any you know really good quality wins. Uh, after tonight, they are 8-5. and five. They, um, They've lost to Arkansas and Illinois, both ranked. Marquette, who, as we know, is a tough team. 
Oklahoma, who seems to have a nice team this year. And tonight they lost to Texas. But I didn't know this prior to the game. Um, they were without their head coach, Bruce Weber, and they only had seven players available because of COVID protocol. So, um, and, and they actually hung tough most of that game. You know, the final score doesn't seem like it, but that game wasn't really put away till the very end. So they don't really have any embarrassing defeats. So we'll see how West Virginia stacks up against them. Hopefully Taz and Gabe will be back by then. Um, I'm sure they will be, but um you know, this should be a nice matchup because this isn't a team that's going to blow our doors off. But, um, you know, if we can go out there and have a solid performance, it'll be a great way to bounce back. Yeah, definitely. And outside that Texas loss, which understandably why they did uh, why they lost by double digits, but every other loss they've had has been by single digits. Arkansas and Illinois are both by eight points. Marquette was by one Oklahoma by two. So they're playing teams tight. They're playing tough teams tight, I think is a better way to say it. Um, and they do have a couple okay wins wichita state um who is kind of middling in rankings i think they're in the top 100 in rpi and nebraska uh the only reason i note them is because um they have what fred hoiberg is their head coach yeah their record's terrible though yeah (laughs) they have a good coach so you know i always think that maybe eventually i'll turn it around because i am a big fan of hoiberg i think he's a fantastic coach even though he just didn't succeed in the the nba he was terrific in iowa state but um, you know, he could pull off an upset every once in a while. Um, but the really interesting thing about Kansas State is that they are not a big team. They are the opposite of a big team. Um, they play five guards, or they have five guards that average over 20 minutes a game, and none of them are taller than six four. Um, their leading scorer is six foot, Nigel Pack at 15.1 points per game. Um, their second leading scorer is Marquise Knoll. Uh, he is five foot eight. Their leading rebounder and third leading scorer is Mark Smith, who is six foot four. <laughs> and their um, their other two guards who see more than twenty minutes a game are Selton Miguel, who is six foot four, and Mike McGurl, who is six foot three. So that's you know most of their minutes every night, right there. Um, and it's something that WVU should be able to match up with size wise pretty well because we do play pretty small ourselves. Um, the one thing about Kansas state though, is, is that they guard the perimeter very well. They're actually one of the better three point defenses in the country. Um, even though as a team, they don't particularly shoot well, they do have a couple players that do shoot particularly good from three, including Nigel pack, who is their leading scorer, shooting 42% from three and Mark Smith, who is their leading rebounder at six foot four. Again, uh, he shoots 41% from three. So, um, I will reference that Mark Smith is their leading rebounder in six foot four multiple times because I think it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think that's all very good for us that we're playing another team that's pretty similar in size to us. So, um, you know, we shouldn't have to worry about getting crushed on the boards or anything like that. So, um, like I said, yeah, it should just be a good matchup for us. I'm not saying it'll be an easy win by any stretch. I mean, K-State seems to you know, I don't think they're going to contend for the Big 12 championship or anything. But at the same time, I don't think they will be an easy out. So I'm glad that that's our next game after that Texas, because hopefully this is the one that gets us back on track. Yeah, definitely. The one thing uh, back to Mark Smith, because I think he's really interesting. Uh, the one thing that worries me about him is that I hope he's not like um, that player from Baylor last year. What was his name? 
Vital, the guy who was like six foot three, and he was basically their center. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm pretty sure he locked down Culver all night, despite being six foot three and just a bowling ball. Um, th- those type of players who are physical and tough, um, especially with the question marks we have at big man. I mean, it could be a matchup nightmare, especially if you can move pretty well, like Vital did last year. So, um, you know, that's really the only matchup issue that I see is even though in the post he might sacrifice some size, we really don't have anyone who can take advantage of that. So um, unless Taz is in there and can go in there and make some turnaways, he could survive on defense and make some open shots on offense and really kind of give us a headache. So I do think it's going to be a close game. I think it's going to be one of those games where, um, you know, maybe we're down um, sometime in the second half and we have to battle back and win maybe by five points or so we've seen it several times this year. And I think this team has the heart to do it, but um, you know, by no means is this going to be one of those games where we coast in and coast out and feel good, especially with all the COVID going on. Yeah, for sure. That's the next thing I was going to bring up. It's going to be interesting to see who is playing for both sides because, you know, like I said, hopefully Taz and, and Gabe and Kobe will all be back because, you know, that would be a solid week since they've been out. But um, I didn't research enough to see how long the Kansas State players have been out. I don't know if that's a recent thing or if they've been in protocol for several days now. So it'll be interesting to see how it affects their team as well. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's you know, just on the COVID thing, it's just around everywhere now. I mean, we're seeing it in the NFL and the NBA. And, you know, especially with all the long distances teams are traveling, it's just spreading like wildfire and it's going to, you know, West Virginia with us. It's not like we're in the ACC where we're traveling, you know, maybe 50 miles North or South for every game. We're traveling, you know, 10 hours away for all of our away games. So we're getting exposed to people who we normally wouldn't have to be exposed around. Um, so it's, you know, I, I, I'm worried about the season because if, you know, the protocols get really stringent, um, you know, we could lose the season or the tournament again. I don't think that will happen. But um, it's just something that kind of sits in the back of my head because a couple of years ago, that was that was awful the year without the tournament. Yeah, for sure. You're seeing it everywhere. Even in the NHL, I'm seeing a ton of guys ending up uh, out with COVID. How, yeah. How's the NBA? You follow it closer than me. It's, they're, they signed Jason. Uh, the, so I'll, t- I'll tell you this. This is a good way to explain it. The Detroit Pistons signed Jay Sean Page to a 10-day contract. I saw that. Good for him. He actually made his first start, wasn't it, tonight? Yeah. Or not start, but played. Yeah. And yeah. It's, they're just signing guys like anyone like um, who came out of retirement. With, uh, Joe Johnson came out of retirement and signed a 10-day. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> if there was anyone I would guess that would come out of retirement, it would be ISO Joe for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're just trying to pick up warm bodies because it's just so bad. I mean, because, you know, you have 12, 15 man rosters and you're practicing together. So if you get five players out, you know, you need a few bodies and they're just trying to find guys who can play. I mean, if if I were, you know, six foot five, you know, maybe I could go try out for a 10 day and they could let me sit on the edge of the bench for you know $10,000 or something. But Heck unfortunately, yeah. I wasn't gifted with those jeans. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. All right. Good stuff. You got anything else for basketball? No, that's it. All right, guys. So before we go, I know he didn't have ties to the great state of West Virginia, but we wanted to mention the passing of the great John Madden. There isn't one single football fan on earth who hasn't heard the name Madden before. 
Whether you're an old timer and remember him as the Super Bowl winning coach for the Oakland Raiders in the 1970s, whether you remember him for his memorable commentary with Pat Summerall during Fox games, Sunday night football games, Super Bowls, the man seemed to work for every network at some point. Or if you're a youngster and remember him for the legendary football video game franchise, Madden Football, he impacted the sport in so many ways, and there was never a greater promoter for the NFL football worldwide than John Madden. Brandon and myself are old enough to remember him for his commentary, but we still love playing a game of Madden from time to time. And it's just a huge part of our childhood, just like so many other football fans. So here's a shout out to the late, great John Madden. He'll never be forgotten. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. Um, You know, he was one of a kind, very entertaining. Um, The one thing that, uh, you know, I'll I'll always remember about him is um, whenever I was a kid, um, and he did it annually, but first time remembering it was whenever I was a kid on Thanksgiving and him doing the turducken. And I had no clue what that was, what that was about or why, but apparently it was a yearly thing. And I remember just every year seeing that thing. And I'm like, I wonder if that's any good. Um, I do like food so that maybe that's why it's the most memorable thing. But, uh, you know, it's just amazing. And especially since he's immortalized with the Madden name um, in video games. I mean, kids are going to play that for probably decades to come under the name Madden. That's not going away anytime soon. So People are going to not even know him as a coach, know of him as a commentator. They're just going to know him for the video games forever, immortalized by some sort of digital media. And that's really incredible. I mean, that's something that it's like having a book and he never had to write a book. He just had to be a great football mind and a great football commentator. So, um, you know, his legacy will live on forever and the world's going to miss him, though, because he was a one of a kind. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And the thing is, you know, I've never, I mean, of course, sometimes people made fun of his commentary because it was so goofy. It was almost, you know, cartoon-like and sometimes, but you've never heard anyone say a bad thing about him. I mean, for as famous as he was, he just always seemed to to treat people in a way that made them remember him in a positive light. So, um, you know, even though he did all of this stuff for a game that we love, just a solid dude from from everyone's account. Yeah. I know of one person, but I won't mention his name. <laughs> well, he doesn't <laughs> even like Betty White. So, you know, we, we're not going to go there. <laughs> Looking true. at you, John Lynch. <laughs> and hey, that's our boy. So uh, yeah. it's all fun and games. Yeah. All right, guys, that is it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, um, you know, please follow us and please check back in with us on wherever you like getting your podcast. This is fun to do and we appreciate you for listening to us. Definitely. Thanks everyone.